me here. I was just looking at CNN, and their headline right now is Attack on Democracy, the, the January 6th hearings. Well, democracy means rule by the people. All right? So were, were the people attacked on January 6th? There was an out-of-control riot, which I thought was a horrible thing. But it's no more an attack on democracy than, say, the the man who came to Chief, uh, to Justice Kavanaugh's house to murder him, right? And all the the rioters outside the homes of Supreme Court justices and the left wing agitators who took over Wisconsin state capital for, for a year. So, if you mean by attack on democracy, disrupting democratic institutions right that that happens dozens of times and it's almost always by the left but as far as attack on democracy there are a hundred things that attack democracy because we are a limited democracy we're a representative democracy and power resides with the people that's the true meaning of democracy and that was really unaffected by january 6th let's see what tucker carlson has to say Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson saying we're still shocked. Everyone else seems to have moved on to the next thing, but we still can't get over what we saw yesterday when Joe Biden stunned the world and announced during a press conference with no warning at all that he has a potentially fatal disease. I have cancer, Joe Biden said. I got it from living in Delaware. It turns out that Joe Biden's home state is so thoroughly polluted, so supernaturally filthy that even lepers living in public sewers in Calcutta refuse to go there. It's too unclean. How dirty is Delaware? It is so dirty, Joe Biden said, that when it rains, it rains oil. That's why everyone in Delaware gets cancer. They get it from the oil rain. Now Joe Biden has it too. Looking back, voters probably should have known a little more about Joe Biden's Delaware-related risk factors before he became president. It's too late now, and it just got worse. Not only is Biden sick from Delaware's oil rain, now he's got COVID. The White House announced it today. So it's been a tough week overall. Wednesday, it was cancer. Thursday, it was the coronavirus. Tomorrow, you've got to think it's going to be monkeypox. If you or someone you know has recently had unsafe sex with Joe Biden, please seek precautionary medical attention. God knows what you might have picked up. At the White House, they are genuinely upset by today's news, not because they're worried about Joe Biden's health. Everybody who works at the White House already knows he's so thoroughly unwell he can barely speak. These are the people who run his teleprompter. They're the ones who put the little pieces of tape on the floor so he knows where the door is. These are not people who have any illusions at all about Joe Biden's condition. What they're upset about is the fact that Joe Biden just stepped on their message. And from day one, that message has been consistent and unrelenting. Get the vax or else. Get the vax so you can't have a job or an organ transplant or Thanksgiving with your kids. Get the vax. You can't visit your mom as she dies in the hospital. Get the vax, Prol. It's the most important thing that you can do. And you're a monster if you don't. So people obeyed. They did it. Okay, they said, we'll take the vax. Doesn't look like we have a choice. But are you sure it works? It's pretty hard to make a successful vaccine against a coronavirus. In fact, nobody's ever done it. We tried with SARS almost 20 years ago, and that failed completely. So are you absolutely positive this stuff works? Are you sure it's safe and effective? Of course we're positive, screamed the mannequin. We're the U.S. government. We know these things. We don't make mistakes. Stop asking questions. Questions have no place in science. Just take this shot and you will not get COVID. That's guaranteed. Joe Biden said that. He didn't just say it once. 
He said it many, many, many times. The fact is, this has been a pandemic of the unvaccinated, unvaccinated. The Delta virus, which is much more transmissible and more deadly in terms of non-unvaccinated people, the, vi the, the, the various shots that people are getting now cover that. They're, they're, you're okay. You're not going to get COVID if you have these vaccinations. If you're unvaccinated, you have some reason to be alarmed. Many of you will, uh, you know, uh, uh, you'll experience severe illness in many cases if you get COVID-19, if you're not vaccinated. Some will die. We have in hand all the vaccines we need to get every American fully vaccinated, including the booster shot. So there's no excuse, no excuse for anyone being unvaccinated. This continues to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Yeah, there's no excuse. And if you don't get the vax, you're going to die from COVID. You're going to get COVID if you don't get the vax. Now, if he had said that once or maybe like 11 times, you could say he's got dementia, whatever. He said it pretty much every day. And he's not the only one. They all did, beginning with Lord Fauci. Need for yet again another boost, in this case, a fourth dose boost for an individual receiving the mRNA. And then the issue of vaccines actually, at least with regard to SARS-CoV-2, can do better than nature. When people are vaccinated, they can feel safe that they are not going to get infected. So it turns out once you get vaccinated, you can feel safe. You're not going to get infected. You're not like the dirty people who didn't get the vax, the anti-science people who are all going to die. And when they do, we're going to laugh at them because they deserve it. And by the way, it wasn't just Biden who's just reading the script. It wasn't just Fauci who will say whatever it takes and is, of course, covering up his own role in creating the virus in the first place. Even actual doctors, even the head of the CDC, even Rochelle Walensky herself said the same thing. Our data from the CDC today suggests, um, you know, that, that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick, um, and, and that it's not just in the clinical trials, but it's also in real-world data. Yeah, it's not just in the clinical trials. It's in real-world data. Just look around. Observed reality. You don't know anyone who's gotten the vax and then got co Oh, wait, everybody who got the vax got COVID. How does that work? Well, they never explained. They stopped telling you it was a pandemic of the unvaccinated because that was so obviously untrue. You got the vax and you still got COVID. So they stopped saying anything at all. And they hoped you would forget about what they said for a full year and all the thousands of people whose lives they destroyed on the basis of that lie. But what they didn't do ever was apologize for it. They hoped they wouldn't have to. But then last Friday, Joe Biden, again, the president of the United States, became visibly symptomatic with something during a speech in Jerusalem. Watch. I was making a speech and uh, I had a terrible headache. <laughs> Excuse me, a terrible headache. And uh, sorry. <coughs> I swallowed wrong. I had a terrible headache. This is years ago. And I did a very stupid thing. <coughs> Remember when you're a kid, all that public health authorities are trying to stamp out cigarette smoking and they printed these huge posters of a 
a wino dying of cirrhosis, tugging on a pell-mell. They said smoking is very glamorous. In other words, don't be this guy. Well, if we ever have another pandemic, let's hope we don't, but if we ever do, play that tape. That's what you don't do. Remember the CDC and its guidance? When you develop symptoms, you isolate immediately. You don't cough on people at press conferences. Those are the rules that your kids lived by at school. That's why they wore the little masks. They couldn't breathe. Your children were also told to scan QR codes for contact tracing purposes if they ever developed COVID, a dry cough. But today, Joe Biden gets COVID. And when reporters asked how he got it and why he didn't isolate after getting symptoms, the response from the White House press secretary was, and we're quoting here, and we're quoting here, I don't think that matters. <laughs> it just doesn't matter. Turns out it doesn't matter. Go ahead and super spread if you want to. So if you're on Air Force One yesterday or you went to the big press conference in Massachusetts or if you were the recipient of a fist bump in Saudi Arabia, you may have the Rona. But nobody cares. I don't think that matters, says Karine Jean-Pierre, the president's glass ceiling shattering publicist. So obviously they're hypocrites. Did you know that? Had you heard that before? Well, now you can mark that down as confirmed. That's only part of the story. And we don't want to ignore the fact that the real story is the president of the United States is 79 years old and has a, how to put it, complicated medical history. And now he's got COVID. So what does that mean? Well, sincerely, we hope he's going to be okay. We do know he's going to lose his sense of smell, maybe forever. What does that mean? No more sniffing little girls. If you're Joe Biden and your main source of pleasure at this late stage in your life is sniffing the hair of unsuspecting, defenseless little girls, and then you can't even smell it? Imagine that. Let's say you're riding your bike and you see a little girl and you think, oh, I'd love to sniff her hair. Oh, man, no sense of smell. So actually, the costs of COVID are a little more profound than sometimes we understand. It's kind of weird from a political perspective is that Biden got infected with COVID at exactly the moment that his approval rating has reached its lowest ebb, not just with normal people, but with Democrats. He's 19% among Hispanic voters. Red alert, anyone? And this also comes at exactly the same moment that his son faces possible felony charges. Huh. And also, needless to say, at the moment that his dementia has become so obvious that no one can possibly deny it. I'm in Israel to honor the Holocaust, he just said. <laughs> Uh, it's so awful. So what does this mean? Well, this incites the blood instincts of others in his party. Gretchen Whitmer, probably sitting in her rec room right now, polishing a resume. I could replace him. But the real story here is the medical story. Joe Biden and a whole lot of other people have gotten pretty sick with COVID after getting multiple shots. What is that about exactly? How did that happen? It's easy to just mock that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. That's clearly untrue. But is there a connection between getting most, multiple COVID vac shots and getting sicker? Is it possible that the vaccine actually can hurt you, especially if you keep getting boosted? Can it weaken your immune system? Well, that looks possible. Multiple studies have looked into this. Just last month, the Journal of Food and Chemical Toxicology published the findings of several mRNA researchers, and we're quoting, in this paper, we present evidence that vaccination induces a profound impairment in type 1 interferon signaling, which has diverse adverse consequences to human health. Well, that seems like a headline. Did you read that in the New York Times? No, you probably didn't. Kind of weird since 
hundreds of millions of people got the shot. The researchers continued that in their studies of the COVID vaccine, quote, we identified potential profound disturbances in regulatory control of protein synthesis and cancer surveillance. These disturbances potentially have a causal link to neurodegenerative disease, myocarditis, Bell's palsy, liver disease, impaired adaptive immunity, impaired DNA damage response, etc. So it's possible, in fact, it's looking likely that the vaccine might suppress the immune system. This fact, the authors concluded, will, quote, have a wide range of consequences, not the least of which include the reactivation of latent viral infections and the reduced ability to effectively combat future infections, end quote. Now, again, we sincerely hope that's not true, but it's not just the conclusion of one scientific journal. The Lancet, maybe the most famous scientific journal in the world, released similar findings in February. The Lancet's piece was entitled, quote, risk of infection, hospitalization and death up to nine months after a second dose of COVID-19 vaccine. A physician called Kenji Yamamoto made this observation about the data from The Lancet. He wrote this in a letter to the Journal of Virology and we're quoting. The study showed that immune function among vaccinated individuals eight months after the administration of two doses of COVID-19 vaccine was lower than that among the unvaccinated individuals. Ah, now your first response, if you're a humane person, to a line like that has got to be deep sympathy because people were misled, they were forced. They were forced. Medical ethics thrown out the window. People were forced to take medicine they didn't want. And some of them may have been hurt by it. And you don't have to take this man's word for it. Pull up the Lancet study yourself. You won't find anything of the text of the article saying what Kenji Yamamoto said, which is weird. Why would the Lancet want to hide a major finding like that? We can't say. But if you look at table three in the piece, here's what you'll find buried in the data. Among people around the age of 80 who have been double vaccinated, that would include people like Joe Biden, the per capita rate of medical incidences, including hospitalizations or death, is nearly twice as high as the rate of serious incidents for the unvaccinated. This is 180 days after vaccination. What is that? And why is no one interested? The piece also includes a chart showing negative vaccine efficacy for all ages after eight months for all participants in the study. So again, this is sad news for a lot of Americans, but it's also a profound indictment, maybe the greatest indictment in our lifetimes of our leaders, their recklessness, their pig-headedness, their dishonesty. Given this, how is the D.C. government, among many others, still requiring school children, public and private school children, to get a COVID vaccine? That's a question that no one asked at today's White House press briefing. How are members of the U.S. military being dismissed without their pensions because they won't take this same vaccine in light of these study results? Is no one paying attention? How is this allowed? But instead, today at the White House briefing, all the questions are about the proof of life video that Joe Biden's office released today. Here it is. Hey, folks, guess you heard this morning I tested positive for COVID. But I've been double vaccinated, double boosted. Symptoms are mild. And, uh, and I really appreciate your inquiries and your concerns. But I'm doing well. I'm getting a lot of work done. I'm going to continue to get it done. Here's a question. Is there a single public statement Joe Biden has made since Inauguration Day that he did not read off a teleprompter? Is there one? 
find it. Hi, I'm Dr. Wolf. So the question that came up in today's press briefing was, after seeing that, is who shot that footage? Is that person in danger? Well, once again, the president's glass ceiling shattering publicist, Karine Jean-Pierre, was asked that question. And she said it's totally fine because the video was taken outside. And there's no risk outside that we will arrest you for paddleboarding in California. But then an hour earlier, to make this even messier, because it's inherently messy, because it's Biden-related, the White House released this picture. And it shows Joe Biden, brace yourselves, indoors at his desk, no mask. So who shot that picture? Is that person still alive? Does that person have monkeypox? Presumably the White House photographer is vaccinated. That's got to be a requirement of work in there. But as we just saw, that may make the photographer more vulnerable to infection. And in fact, and we hate to say this, it might mean the photographer is now more likely to face serious health complications. So underlying all of this is a really ominous fact, and that is a lot of people have been hurt by this. You hate to say it. Germany's Ministry of Health found that one in 5,000 Germans have suffered, quote, serious side effects after a COVID-19 vaccine. Now, one in 5,000 may seem like a lot or a little, but extrapolate forward to the United States, a country with our population. That would mean that in the U.S., if that number holds constant across countries, and why wouldn't it, it would mean more than 100,000 Americans may have been seriously injured by the COVID vaccine. Why does no one talk about them? Why does nobody care? And what happens to them now? If Joe Biden accomplishes a single thing as, as president, he'll be getting more people to ask that question today. And it's a fair question. And to end, science is about questions. Science is questioning. So anyone who tells you you're anti-science for asking a question doesn't understand what science is. Dr. Harvey Risch is a professor emeritus of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health. And he joins us tonight. Doctor, thanks so much for coming on. I, it, what worries me in all of this is not necessarily what the results are of these studies, though they seem kind of scary, but the fact that no one in charge of our public health systems is talking about it, apologizing for statements they made that were wrong. There's no accountability. I just feel like no one's going to ever trust doctors again after this. Are you worried about that? Well, I'm worried about the credibility of medicine, about public health, about government institutions, about Congress people even. Nobody has been forthcoming and, and talking honestly about any of this. But our whole system, I never thought about this until the last two years, but it's, it's built on trust and everybody trusts their doctor. I always have. Everybody does. People love doctors. Doesn't the medical establishment understand that their credibility is at stake? And that's kind of existential for them and for all of us. Well, the problem is that doctors are more afraid of what happens if they uh, go outside the permitted messaging than just hiding behind going along to get along, you know. And, and so their credibility loss follows because they were unwilling to stand up to the message. You are one of the few who's had heterodox views on this and has said so publicly. What have... Other prof professors you worked with, other physicians that you know, people who have lived in your world for some time, what have they said to you privately? 
I have lots of people who've supported what I've said, people from diverse walks of life and different academic disciplines, not just medicine, epidemiology, and science, that basically everybody's got some reason to be scared about being public because of negative consequences to them, their economics, their family, and whatever. So they prefer, prefer to just kind of be under the radar. And in fact, the telemedicine groups have been under the radar, but have treated more than a quarter million of Americans with the drugs that one's not allowed to talk about, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, very, very successfully, overwhelmingly successfully, a quarter of a million people treated that way. And it's all sub rosa, but it's, it's working that way. Boy, you read accounts of the Soviet Union, Soviet science that was so ideological that it was insane. Are you worried that that's happening in our country? Well, yes and no. You know, to the degree that people believe our current insanity, I would be worried about it. But I don't know that there's a large amount of belief except for maybe 20 or 30 percent of the, the medical establishment and the general population that are true believers. And the, the rest are either skeptics or know the truth but can't really come out with it, can't be public about it. Oh, man, I feel like we're losing a lot right now. Thank you for your bravery and your commitment to actual science. Dr. Harvey Risch, great to see you. Pleasure. So Roe v. Wade got overturned several weeks ago by the Supreme Court. The left is very upset. People, some people want legal abortion. Fine. But to move from there to attacking the idea of having children, having babies is now a bad thing. It's hard to believe they go there. Oh, but they have gone there. Just flipped on NBC the other day and saw a news report encouraging women to sterilize themselves on NBC News. It's not an exaggeration. We'll show it to you next. Wow. So, so much to unpack from that, that segment of uh, Tucker Carlson. So it's funny that the people who are most afraid that our, our democracy is under attack these tend to be, number one, the people who are outraged that the people will now get to vote on whether or not to make abortion illegal, that, that states will have the right to decide whether or not abortion is illegal. So that aspect of democracy, right, that's a horrible thing. <laughs> Luke is about to disavow hard, Luke looking ready to blow. George Floyd did not comply. Neither did Tucker when it comes to vaccine mandates. Luke is intense looking right now. Looks like he is reading something. Go easy on us, Luke. Remember when they built bulldozed the skateboard park on the beach and covered them with sand? Tucker needs to learn how to comply. Double down with the mandates. Okay, so so much to unpack from from that segment, and it's it's why we need dissident voices like Tucker Carlson. We shouldn't just be getting the same predictable responses. So, it is kind of stunning how in in the news media they almost always very quickly agree on the type of emotion to take when reporting a, a story so you know some stories are about heroes and, and some stories about bad guys but there's this overwhelming sameness in the in the media with the angles that they take on every major news story now 
news stories can be infinitely complicated. It's just kind of bizarre that the news media always, almost always, have have the, the same emotional tone and the same angle on almost every major story, whether it's COVID, vaccines, the January 6th riots. Like, how come they, they so agree? And that kind of makes the point for this excellent book by Ronnie Goldman, the philosopher and lawyer, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, the Nature and Origins of Conservophobia, that the people who run our society are liberal left. And even when Republicans say, as they did in the 2016 election, win the presidency, control of the U.S. Senate, and control of the House of Representatives, they still feel very much under the the left's boot, right? You win the elections, but you still feel like the left is running things. And one example of that is how the news media always seem to take the same angle and the same emotion with every major story, whether it's the LA Times, New York Times. You, you would think with, with all the people out there working on a story that there would be much more variety in how a story is reported and how how it is presented and what kind of emotions are taken to the story. And yet there's just this numbing sameness. Right. So the people who say January 6th riots are attack on democracy, right? The same people who are outraged that people get to vote on whether or not abortion is legal. The same people who are outraged that uh, people got to vote in Great Britain about leaving the European Union. And they're the same people who are outraged that we're not listening to the experts with regard to COVID. Now, I, I don't have to repeat, I have conventional views on COVID. I think, generally speaking, the experts were more right than the people, right? I, I think, generally speaking, the, the encouragement of wearing masks, the even mask mandates and encouragement of taking vaccines, I, I'm all on that side. But I do recognize that the same people who are shouting at us that democracy is under attack, we have to pay great attention to the January 6th hearings, they don't want democracy operating with regard to COVID, right? They want expert rule. So the very people, the very institutions who argue that our democracy is under attack because of Donald Trump and because of the January 6th riots, they want ruled by experts. We got overturned several weeks ago and there was a ton of coverage about it, but what you didn't hear ever was anything but the merits of the court's decision. They never talked about the legal aspect of a legal decision. Instead, they moved from defending abortion to attacking fertility. Anyone who wants to, I don't know, have kids, maybe thinks having a family is more important than working at Citibank, was the enemy. Just in case you're wondering if it's all corporate propaganda, it is. So you saw Elizabeth Warren and Gretchen Whitmer begin attacking crisis pregnancy centers. Like, what did they do wrong? Helping women in need? Not allowed! Then some media outlets went as far as encouraging women to sterilize themselves. It sounds like that's something we'd make up, but you couldn't make that up. Here's a recent segment from NBC News. A staggering number of women are now considering permanent sterilization procedures. Following the Supreme Court decision, Google searches for procedures like tube tying or tubal ligation surge. I traveled to Austin, Texas, where I spoke with three women about how the latest abortion restrictions affected their decision. 
I don't want any more. I'll be 27 in October and I'm just done. You're done. I'm done. So are you for sure that sterilization is something that you want to do or just something you want to learn more about? I think it's for something for sure I want. So Megan, you already had your tubes removed. Yes. And Ashley, you're about to begin the procedure? Uh, yeah, I'm in the process of consultations. What was behind the timing of when you decided to have this procedure? After the draft decision was leaked, um, I decided to uh, schedule the procedure. I've always known I ha like didn't want children, and I didn't want to be in a position where I didn't want children and would lack access to contraception as well. So, like Megan, I have always known that I didn't want kids. Let's be honest. There's a lot of judgment around the decision to have this procedure, around this decision in general. Right. What do you say to people who don't understand? Sterilization or permanent contraception is just as permanent as choosing to have a child, right? So a lot of the arguments against it, like, well, what if you regret it? You could say the same thing about having a kid. Kind of like NBC News showing up at Jonestown. Now you're drinking a glass of Kool-Aid right now. Tell people judge you. Why are you doing that? Because it's civilizational suicide, of course, that they're promoting. But at least they're out in the open about it now. Dana Lash is a nationally syndicated radio show host, and we're happy to have her join us tonight. So it turns out, Dana, if you have kids, it detracts from your loyalty to Amazon. So now corporate media are promoting sterilization just to make, I don't know, more obedient workers? Like, what is this? Yeah, so why why is the news media so uniform in their, their reactions to the overturning of Roe v. Wade? I mean, why do they have so much sympathy, even a heroic approach to all these women want to get sterilized? Like, why? And the one obvious answer is I'm not aware of any pro-life member of the mainstream media. I, I'm sure that there are some pro-life members of the, the mainstream media, but I don't know of one. Right? Can, can you name one pro-life reporter for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, CNN, uh, ABC, NBC, CBS News? Right? I, I'm unaware of one single reporter who's pro-life. And so the ideological sameness, all right, uh, the ideological dominance of, of the left in, in reporting is one major reason why there's such a sameness to the news. But another factor is that people are really afraid of stepping out of line and they, they don't want to be attacked by their peers. So frequently when you have a profession that you'd love, right, whether you're a doctor or a journalist or a dentist or a lawyer, the opinion of your peers is going to matter to you 10 times more than the opinion of anyone else. And so you don't want to get out of step with your peers. You don't want to be ill thought of by your peers. And I think that's another powerful factor why journalists have such a similar approach to the news and, and why, say, lawyers right, kind of band together. And uh, often they, they do a lot of useless billing right? They, they kind of have a tacit agreement that, you know, I'll make these motions and then you'll make motions to oppose me and we'll, we'll run up our bills and then we'll get together and we'll, we'll settle things after we, we bill for tens of thousands of dollars. So for people who have a profession and their profession is important to them, that's usually far more important to them than their race, right? Doctors usually feel far more in common with people around the world who are doctors rather than their fellow citizens.
And so there are many forms of identity, and racial identity is one form, religious identity is another, but if you're high achieving, you're a member of a profession, and you respect what you do, you like what you do, and you value what you do, in all likelihood, your profession probably be your primary source of identity. Okay, so many things to talk about in Tucker Carlson's segment tonight. Oh, so the accusation of hypocrisy that Joe Biden is a hypocrite. Whenever you stand for something publicly, you lay yourself wide open for being accused of hypocrisy. The only way to avoid being accused of hypocrisy is to stand for nothing, right? You stand for nothing. You promote nothing. You don't hold by any standards, all right? You don't promote any standards, right? Then you can never be a hypocrite. But as soon as you stand for something, you will always be a hypocrite because everyone is fallible. If you're religious, you will be far more likely to be accused of hypocrisy than if you're secular. Like, when was the last time a, a secular humanist was accused of being a hypocrite for his secular humanism? It, it never happens because secular humanism, in effect, in the real world, it doesn't stand for anything. So you can never be accused of hypocrisy. Now, generally speaking, the liberal left worldview is much more hygienic than the right-wing worldview. The liberal left worldview places a much greater emphasis on safety and on, on health and keeping things hygienic. Therefore, it only makes sense that people on the, on the liberal left are going to be far more likely to be called out for hypocrisy. They all have to be. And then... On the other hand, right-wing politicians will be far more likely to be called out for sexual immorality because, generally speaking, being on the right means that you're for sexual restraint. And so if you stand aligned with a traditional approach to sex, then you're going to be far more likely to be called out for, for hypocrisy if you stray from that. So I love to bang, right? I, I did a lot of banging in my life. Uh, society would collapse, right, if, if everybody did as much banging as I did. And at the same time, I stand for a traditional approach for sex. And so, yes, I'm, I'm a hypocrite, right? Anything that I stand up for, I'm going to be a hypocrite because I'm fallible. I get tired, right? My willpower steadily drops during the day. So I'm much more fallible. All right, I was... Today, I, I drove to Palm Springs, right? So I was up at 4 a.m. I was hitting the road by 6 a.m. I wanted to be in Palm Springs by, by 8 a.m. And uh, the drive there, not such a big deal. But after I was in Palm Springs and I did all the things that I needed to do, right, by, say, 12 o'clock, right, I'd already worked a full day and I was tired. So now I'm driving back from Palm Springs it's going to be about a two and a half hour drive. There's a lot more traffic than when I came. And I don't have nearly the willpower that I had going in. So driving to Palm Springs, right? Very impressive how I spent my time. I was listening to a book on the history of Prussia. I talked to a, a sponsee. Like I was doing only the right things, only the good things. Driving back from Palm Springs, I am feeling lethargic. I have no willpower left. I'm just kind of fighting to stay alert and awake. And so what do I turn to? I turn to my, my favorite erotic memories, right? So 
I'm not proud of that. I, I don't, you know, recommend that. Right. Generally speaking, I do best when I go through the whole day with minimal amounts of lust. In fact, I sometimes have entire days where I have no conscious amounts of lust. But when I'm barreling down the freeway at 80 miles an hour, right, and I'm I'm not sleepy, but I'm lethargic and it's it's 115 degrees outside. It's you know, I've got the, the air conditioner cranked up in my car, but it's just kind of a the lethargy, the, the weight of the day is just you know, weighing on me. So I'm not sleepy. If I was sleepy, I'd pull over and just take a nap. But I'm just lethargic. I'm not sharp. And I'm I'm not just all out of love. I'm all out of willpower. I'm all out of self-discipline. So I, I go back from Palm Springs to Beverly Hills, right? still listening to a book on the history of Prussia. But that's not going to be enough to get me through this long drive. I need to wake the heck up. And so I'm thinking about you know, my, my favorite erotic interactions, right? I, I'm going through them in my mind. I, I'm remembering the, the women that I've been with. Right? I don't normally do this. This is not good for me. It's not good for me to, to get that high, right? That, that euphoric recall. Euphoric recall rarely, rarely, rarely serves me. Not good for me. But if I'm barreling down the freeway at 80 miles an hour and I need to get more alert, right? I need to become more alive. I need to you know, be vibrating at a higher level. Then the euphoric recall of, you know, some of the amazing interactions I've had and some of my, you know, athletic exploits, right? That's the time to bring it out. Because I'm just all out of willpower, and so I get home. I'm starving. I haven't haven't eaten in in eight hours, and so if I don't eat, right, no willpower. Like I'm just putting everything aside. I've got to eat, and then after I eat, I get one thing done that I need to do. I get second thing done that I need to do, and then I'm all out of willpower. Essentially, for the rest of the day, I. I don't want to even listen to anything new, right? I don't even have the willpower, the strength, the, the, the moral or intellectual fortitude to take in new ideas. I want to hear something calming and familiar. So I listened to God, a biography by Jack Miles. This is about the sixth time through that I've listened to this, but it's familiar. I find it soothing. And so I just lie down for, for about two hours and just let got a biography by Jack Miles just kind of wash over me. And then I, I start to come alive when at about 4.55, all right, just before I decide to do a show, just before I, I come on air. And I'm coming alive right now because I am slightly out of touch with reality, right? I have a, a slight to moderate overestimation of my own importance right now. I have a slight to moderate overestimation of my own sagacity, right? I have a slight to moderate uh, overestimation of the compelling and entertaining nature of this show that I want to do. Because if I didn't have some of that delusion, I wouldn't be doing a show. I, I would just be chilling. It's a hot day out there. I'd be chilling. Like, why work? Like, why put something forward if I just looked at this show with complete realism right if i just said wow 20 people uh watch again watch you live bro and then when, when all is said and done with this video 
right? Maybe 300 people will watch it and another 75 people will, will listen to listen to it on, on SoundCloud. And that's going to be it. And it's not going to have a noticeable effect on, on the lives of 95% of people who, who take it in. And then for perhaps 5%, so maybe five people out there, 10 people out there are going to experience you know, a benefit to their life that, that's just above and beyond what they would otherwise be doing at this time. If I just took that coldly realistic approach, I wouldn't be here, right? So sometimes illusions serve you. God forbid, sometimes, I'm sure the Talmud and the rabbis would disagree with me about this and sex addiction therapists would disagree with me about this, but uh, uh, felt to me this afternoon when I was all out of willpower that that, uh, an hour of euphoric recall when I was trying to spark up on my drive home from, from Palm Springs, I, I felt like that served me. Normally, I don't want to go there. Right? Normally, I don't want to be daydreaming about you know these various visceral interactions that I've had with uh, beautiful women over the course of my life because that doesn't serve me. I, I don't want to go down that path. But I need to feel alive <laughs> when I'm all out of willpower. What are you going to do? Okay. You've been a wonderful audience. You've been the best audience. And so you deserve you deserve some hate porn. Uh, let me give you a quick burst here of Tucker Carlson tonight. So you've never been in a TV control room. There's a huge bank of monitors in every single one of them that shows everything that's on TV. And one of our producers just said that on every other channel, they're playing some kind of January 6th hearing. January 6th, because that's the biggest thing going on in America right now. Now, why are they doing that? No one wants to watch it. You know what happened on January 6th. Some guy in Viking horns wandered around on mushrooms and made weird noises. And that was kind of it. It was an insurrection in which none of the insurrections had guns. But it makes the people covering it feel like they lived through Vietnam. More lifestyle liberal narcissism. That's really the key to everything. Anyway, if you plan to travel by plane... Anywhere in the United States, you're going to have to provide identification several times. Now, of course, that's racist. But what's interesting is that requirement does not apply to illegal aliens. Today, the director of the TSA admitted that hundreds of illegal aliens have been allowed to board airplanes just by showing their arrest warrants. He admitted that while being questioned by Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, who joins us tonight. Senator, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for asking that question. Can I get on a plane by showing my arrest warrant now? Yeah, well, apparently you can, Tucker. I mean, here's the thing. It is utter and total contempt that this administration is showing for the law-abiding citizens of the United States. What they're telling us is wait in the longest lines ever, be treated to all kinds of random inspections and invasive procedures and have your stuff confiscated. But if you're an illegal alien and you have committed a crime, oh, and you have an arrest warrant, come right to the front of the line and get right on the plane. And as, as you said, the TSA administrator told me today that maybe a thousand such illegal aliens just this calendar year alone have been able to use their arrest warrants to get on planes. It is unbelievable. And fly free at a time of rising fares. So I know you're a lawmaker, so this may make you uncomfortable. Why should I obey the law again? Well, I mean, that's exactly the message the administration is sending, is that if you obey the law, basically you're a sucker. I mean, this is is the message 
to law-abiding citizens, that you're scum, you do as you're told, you stand there, you wait. But, oh, no, if you're a criminal, hey, we're fine with that because they want to normalize crime, Tucker. They want to normalize illegal immigration. They want to normalize rioting. They want to normalize all of that stuff. And, and here we have it. My favorite part of the hearing, Tucker, was when the TSA administrator said to me, oh, we're only concerned about people who might pose a, a risk to, to flight. You know, I said, being a, a confirmed criminal and having an arrest warrant isn't a risk in the air? And, and he just looked at me blankly and said, oh, well, that, that's, that's not our problem. <laughs> Apparently, it's the American people's problem. Why are none of these undocumented migrants being flown to Martha's Vineyard? I checked this morning, 0.03% of people in Martha's Vineyard arrived from another country. There's no diversity there whatsoever, none. So why aren't they going there? Why are they going to central Pennsylvania? You know, I think the answer is, Tucker, because liberal leaders are always for their policies for someone else. You know, they don't want you to be able to buy gas, but they want to be able to fly around in their private planes. They don't want you to be yeah. able uh, to, uh, to they want you to have to follow the law, but they're not going to follow the law. They don't want to have to accept any illegal immigration or illegal immigrants in their communities. But, of course, they want yeah. to send them to everybody else's. I mean, that's the real truth here. And we're seeing it all over the country. It's the latest example. We need a massive airlift to Aspen. And we're going to do a whole show on that soon because I think it's a really good idea. We need to decolonize Aspen. I can't wait. Senator Hawley, great to see you tonight. Thank you so much. Thank you. So 107,000, at least, Americans died just last year from drug ODs. You may know someone whose family was affected. Most of it was fentanyl. This problem has never been taken seriously by anybody. In fact, just a few years ago, back from funding by George Soros, the state of Oregon decided to legalize fentanyl as well as other narcotics. So what happened next? Well, Fox's Dan Springer has an update on that. Here it is. The streets of Portland are an open-air drug market. People in crisis seem to be everywhere. Oregon voters thought it would be different. In 2020, they overwhelmingly passed the first state law decriminalizing possession of small amounts of all hard drugs. Meth, heroin, even fentanyl. The idea was treatment, not jail time. But 15 months into the experiment, drug overdose deaths in Oregon hit an all-time high last year at 1,074. Portland set a record for murders, many tied to drug turf wars. Lily Morgan is a state representative from Oregon. She joins us tonight. Lily Morgan, thanks so much for coming on. This does not seem very compassionate at all. Okay, and uh, right now and for the last few months, more vaccinated people are dying of COVID than unvaccinated. Now, this doesn't mean that vaccines don't work. People who are more rigorous about getting vaccinated, by and large, tend to be older people who are more at risk of dying from COVID. But uh, I'm, I'm very much pro-vaccine, right? I think uh, the COVID vaccines have substantially reduced death rates and hospitalization, but they have not apparently as dramatically reduced in infection rates. And so this topic reminds me of a perennial topic that I like to talk about, that when people see something that they believe is good, they are very tempted to lie on behalf of what they think is good. So there are very good, very good arguments against uh, pornography, all right? But then people who are against pornography, they overstate their case by saying that the pornography causes rape and violence and, and crime, and the evidence just isn't there. I mean, Japan has tons of pornography, a minuscule crime rate. Uh, Scandinavia is the first part of the world that uh, legalized pornography, very low crime rates. So with regard to vaccines, 
our, our ruling class and, and scientists and people who were in influential positions, they wanted to get on board with what I believe is a very good thing to promote vaccination. But as with many good things that people want to promote, they oversell it and effectively lie to to try to promote by using noble lies. And the the lie was that if you get the vaccine, then you won't get infected. And obviously that has not held up. But it's the most common thing in the world. When, when people in, in a public position, right, they want to promote something that they believe is good. And so they oversell it, they overstate, and they end up lying. Now, Tucker has just been completely irresponsible here with 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 promoting this uh paper all right i mean it's just it's really awful what what, what he's doing here all right so it's a paper by peter mccullough all right that paper that he was talking about how vaccinations uh suppress the the immune response right so this was this was published in a journal i'd never heard of Right, uh, food, food and, and chemical toxicology, right? And yeah, food and chemical toxicology—that's the, the name of the the journal. But uh, it's being published by this anti-vaxxer and ivermectin advocate, Peter McCullough, right? So it just doesn't hold up. I mean, why would? Why would Tucker push this this article in Food and Chemical Toxicology? Right, this this peer review study claims that COVID nineteen mRNA vaccines have a causal link to neurodegenerative disease, myocarditis, and all these other demented lunatic claims that one shouldn't waste time on dissembling, but uh, people have. And so when I read what Peter McCullough wrote, and then read what what critics write that i just find that the critics overwhelmingly far more convincing than uh, peter mccullough molecular biologists and welcome to another covid19 debunking video this week by popular demand i'll be debunking dr peter mccullough peter mccullough is a cardiologist who went viral earlier this year when he testified in front of the u.s congress to say a bunch of wrong things among these wrong things was a claim that there is no effort to repurpose old drugs in order to treat COVID or no real efforts to find treatments for COVID in general. This was a flat out lie. There have been and continue to be several efforts to repurpose a wide variety of different drugs in order to successfully treat COVID. Some of these drugs have had success and some have definitely not. And now doctors have a go-to strategy to treat COVID, which by all means is not foolproof, but it is much better than what we had at the beginning of the pandemic. But for some reason, Peter McCullough finds it appropriate to ignore all of this in front of the U.S. Congress and instead plug drugs that definitely don't work like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. His reasons for saying these things in front of Congress are most likely motivated by political interests and lobbying groups. But what kinds of things is he saying today? Is he still saying wrong things that are demonstrably false by the evidence at hand? Let's get into it. First thing I'd say is, is, is have an early treatment program. And I have advised government successfully. I advised um, Sri Lanka, for instance, things were out of control. Like the immediate pivot to early treatment, early treatment centers, using COVID recovery patients as workers, and Sri Lanka got right out of it. Okay, so this is an excerpt from an interview he gave to an anti-vaccine group in New Zealand. Right out of the gate, he's making this claim about how he successfully advised Sri Lanka out of the COVID-19 pandemic without using vaccines or lockdowns. This interview was given on August 26, 2021, and at that time, Sri Lanka was right in the middle of its biggest peak of COVID cases yet. They did have to lock down, and their vaccination rates are rising to above 70% as we speak. So right away, he's making a claim that just doesn't check out. It's really weird, actually, that he's lying about that, but he definitely is. 
Um, I think, honestly, the vaccine program is a bigger problem than COVID in New Zealand. Yeah, he really puts the tinfoil pedal to the metal here and just blasts off with anti-vaccine rhetoric. But I'm interested to hear, what's his evidence? Um, uh, uh, the vaccine, in a sense, has become a, a menace. It's, it's been a propagandized, socially weaponized menace, and it's, it's terrible that we found out the vaccines don't work. Okay, so he doesn't really offer any evidence, but he makes a claim, and we can see how that claim actually stacks up to the evidence. No matter where the research is done, which vaccine it's on, or what variant we're dealing with, we find that the vaccines work. Now, despite these detailed analyses done by researchers, people will still try to say, well, what about Israel? What about this country or that country that just had a big spike in COVID cases despite being highly vaccinated? Well, you have to look at the whole picture. These numbers reflect a couple of things. One being that whenever countries become highly vaccinated, they tend to remove most of the restrictions that they had in place to prevent COVID. Meanwhile, the rest of the world is not so highly vaccinated. So with restrictions removed and potentially unvaccinated people traveling in and out of the country, they end up seeing a spike in cases. Couple this with the fact that vaccines prevent against disease and not infection, which are two completely different things, and it's easy to see why these things are happening. Where you see the real success in vaccines is when you look at the deaths that these countries are experiencing. Unlike earlier in the pandemic, when a large spike in deaths would follow a spike in cases, we don't see that in highly vaccinated countries. That's because vaccines are doing their job, they are preventing disease and reducing transmission. All of the evidence for that is free to read, it's been flashing across your screen, and it's all linked in the description. And they're not safe. I mean, that's the problem. Like, you know, vaccinate the healthcare workers. What's that going to do? It's probably going to worsen COVID-19. They're more likely to get it and carry it and get sick. I mean, it's just, it's actually, it'd be better to have unvaccinated workers. It is definitely not better to have more unvaccinated healthcare workers. There have been studies to test this specific idea, and they consistently show that vaccinated healthcare workers get sick less often with COVID and spread it less often, which means there are more healthcare workers available in hospitals and less healthcare workers spreading disease to vulnerable patients. Both good things to have in a pandemic. So um, uh, what I would advise is uh, an immediate halt to the vaccine program. And I wouldn't be the first one. This has been advised by the Evans Space Consulting Group in the UK. They're the chief uh, contract consulting group to the World Health Organization. They reviewed the yellow card system. Just like tonight, I reviewed the VAERS system with you. And uh, their formal recommendation is shut down the program, not safe. Well, good thing the UK didn't listen to them because their vaccination program is moving right along. Also, this evidence-based consulting group he's talking about, they don't have as much reach and influence as he's saying. He's definitely embellishing there. But what he's talking about is a letter that was put out by their director, Tess Lowry, based on the yellow card system. The yellow card system is basically the UK's version of VAERS here in the US. They're both passive reporting systems that anybody can submit events to, whether or not those events are real or actually associated with a vaccine. Needless to say, the data in these databases can't be taken at face value. I've debunked them several times in previous videos, and this is no different. If you want to read more about why the specific letter that Tesla Lowry put out is deeply flawed, then you can read this. I've linked it in the description below. But in any case, the UK clearly didn't follow this recommendation because the science does not support it. There was a French group early in March that advised the EMA shut down the vaccine program. So of course he never names this group, but clearly their recommendation was not followed because France is also moving right along with their vaccination program. Um, having good oral nasal hygiene, uh, you know, having some prophylactic programs in place. You can have some medicinal prophylactic programs, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. She should be featured in a monoclonal antibody program for high-risk seniors. It's just actually a more patient-centered approach um, as opposed to a, a, a population-based uh, weaponized vaccine approach. It's very different. So he's still touting drugs like ivermectin. Great. Yeah, ivermectin does not treat COVID. End of story. We've tested it. We've tried it. It doesn't work. You might still see people posting long lists of studies that they claim support the idea that ivermectin treats COVID, or they might just link you to a website called IV Meta, which essentially does the same thing. But I can tell you very confidently that these people do not actually understand the science. Take that IV Meta website, for example. It's essentially a lazy meta-analysis that takes a lot of different studies and puts them all together in order to reach one conclusion about what ivermectin does. The problem is that you have a garbage in, garbage out situation. If the studies going into the meta-analysis are not quality, then the conclusion is not going to be quality. And in fact, most of the studies on the IV Meta website are insufficiently powered to make any strong conclusions about COVID. And incidentally, it still includes some studies that were shown to never have actually happened. 
That's right, these ivermectin studies that showed huge benefits of using ivermectin in COVID patients never actually happened, but they're skewing heavily the results of this meta-analysis. Meanwhile, if we look at properly... Okay, so yes, definitely listen to Peter McCullough and then definitely listen to critiques of him. When I hear the critiques, I find the critiques much more powerful. Whenever you see a magic trick, a lady getting sawn in half or a magician pulling a pineapple out of somebody's ear, you think, I wish I knew how that was done. There's got to be a rational explanation for what I just saw. And we feel that way about Nancy Pelosi's net worth. She served in Congress for several hundred years, and yet somehow she's worth $100 million. How'd she get so rich? We're not the only people who've asked that question, especially after her husband, Paul Pelosi, invested more than a million dollars in the semiconductor industry right around the time Nancy Pelosi learned that a $50 billion subsidy for the semiconductor industry was about to pass the Senate. So how long has this little scheme been going on exactly? Today, Fox News Digital asked Nancy Pelosi that question, and she made it clear she will not tolerate questions about how she got so darn rich. Watch this. Over the course of your career, uh, has your husband ever made a stock purchase or sale based on information he's received from you? What are you saying? Uh, over the course of your career, has your husband ever made a stock purchase or sale based on information he received from you? No. Absolutely not. Okay. The demoralizing of Ukraine. <laughs> I'm not taking your dumb questions about my insider trading. Go away, Prol. It reminded us of a Dave Chappelle sketch. It did. And a lot of people online noticed this. Watch. What about people who say you're only interested in the Middle East for oil? What? Huh? Oil? <laughs> she didn't knock over the water jug, but pretty close. Well, the Los Angeles School District is one of the biggest in the country. The district is now instructing teachers to educate children starting in kindergarten to experiment with non-binary pronouns just to kind of destroy human civilization and throw it all into chaos and confusion. That's actually happening. By the way, why is a school talking to your kindergartners about sex? Shouldn't they be in prison for doing that? Yes, they should be. Chris Rufo has proved this is going on. He's obtained several documents from the district's equity department. He joins us tonight. Chris, thanks so much for coming on. Tell us what exactly is going on here, if you would. So what's happening is that public school bureaucrats across the country, in this case in Los Angeles, have taken the principles of academic queer theory and then turned them into a K through 12 pedagogy. They're training kids as young as kindergarten to experiment with sexual identities uh, such as trans, genderqueer, pansexual, gender fluid, two spirit, all of these uh, really crazy and synthetic uh, uh, constructions that were we once thought were relegated to academia, they've now been mainlined into elementary school classrooms uh, all over the school district in Los Angeles. I'm really, and I mean this sincerely, I'm confused. If I find your kindergartner in the park and start talking to her about her sex life, you have a moral right to punch me out and call the cops. Why in the world are we allowing teachers to do the same thing? Well, I think a large part of the reason is because of this illusion of authority. And so the two prominent domains where these ideas are being transmitted are education and the medical profession. And, uh, you know, for better or worse, historically, these have been very trusted. So people listen to teachers. They listen to doctors. 
Um, but I think this is starting to change because this is getting, frankly, out of control. And one thing that is really important to know that actually school districts like Los Angeles have adopted an explicit policy that teachers can facilitate your child's gender or sexual transition. And the default policy is that they keep it secret from parents. Uh, so they know that they're doing something that parents would object to. Uh, I have the documents that prove exactly what they're doing, uh, and they're trying to keep it a secret. I mean, up until recently, the rule was you troll my minor children about their sex life and you're going to get hurt. And I think that should be the rule still. I think this is that it's that threatening. I appreciate all you've done to bring this to light. Chris Rufo, thank you. Thank you. So Hillary Clinton's back in the news talking about her future at exactly the moment Joe Biden announced he's got the Rona. What's going on there? We'll tell you after the break. Yeah, wouldn't it be funny if uh, Hillary runs in, in, I don't know, it just seems ludicrous to think that Hillary Clinton could run for president in 2024. But uh, I, I guess it's it's real. But... Uh, Bizarre. I mean, who who is the Democrat's strongest candidate for 2024? Been a hot summer. Been a lot of hot summers recently. Instead of thinking through, well, what can we do about that? It's getting a little warmer. Climate change is changing. It's happened before. We had glaciers at one point. The Biden administration is telling us this is an existential crisis. It's a threat to humanity. So they spun people into a total frenzy. And at the same time, they've stopped prosecuting crimes committed by Joe Biden voters. So what happens next? Well... Joe Biden voters are now roaming New York City, committing violence, slashing the tires of SUVs on parked residential streets. You're seeing one picture of the vandalism. This comes from the Upper East Side of Manhattan at 82nd Street, an area until recently didn't have a lot of crime. So we know what happened because the Biden voters left flyers on the SUVs they wrecked, telling their victims that your tires got slashed because of the climate crisis. You're selfish for driving an SUV. In fact, not just an SUV, any kind of car. It says that right on the flyer. Quote, driving a hybrid or electric, these are still polluting, dangerous, and cause congestion. So instead, you need to walk, cycle, or use public transit. Right. Unless you have, like, a job or kids you need to bring somewhere, but they don't have jobs or kids. Of course, they've probably been sterilized per NBC News's orders. Yeah, so they're committing violence unchecked. This is not going in the right direction. We're out of time, unfortunately, but we're going to go on a positive note. We're going to show you a picture that Hillary Clinton tweeted today. She posted it shortly after, probably not coincidentally, Joe Biden announced that he had the Rona. The picture shows her standing in front of Bill Clinton's campaign plane in the 1990s. And the caption says, on the move. What is Hillary Clinton trying to tell us? Hillary Clinton, the world's angriest chipmunk. What is she telling us? We think we know. She's running again. And if she does, she has our full support. Hillary Clinton, 2024. Bring it on, baby. We'll be back tomorrow night. Have the best night with the ones you love. Sean Hannity, right now. Oh, wait a minute. You said the other night that you wanted Kamala to run and you were supporting her candidacy. Is together, it Kamala or, together. or Hillary? I'm, you get look, to pick I'm, one. I'm not sexist. I'll take them both. 
You got them both. Maybe one a vice president, one VP. There you go. Perfect, perfect ticket, Tucker. All right. Thank, thank you, you and sure. welcome tonight to Hannity. One year ago tonight, President Biden assured this country, every American, that if they get vaccinated and they get their booster, they're not going to get COVID. You won't get it. Now the double vax, double boosted. President Biden has just tested positive for COVID-19. I guess so much for Joe Biden and Dr. Fauci's science. Now, of course, we do very sincerely wish the 79-year-old commander-in-chief a very quick recovery. This is not a good disease. I've seen the worst of it. We wish him the best. Coming up, Dr. Ronnie Jackson, Dr. Nicole Sapphire, they will join us with analysis. The great one, Mark Levin, is here tonight. But first, Wow, Mark Levin's the, the great one. So Tucker Carlson was actually a week ahead of Sean Hannity in taking COVID seriously. And so there was one academic study saying that uh, Tucker Carlson saved, saved lives because his audience prepared much more seriously for COVID than did uh, Sean Hannity's. So I was out there driving. I did about five, five hours of driving today. It's such an American thing, right? You, you get out there and uh, there's a book on this called Why We Drive Toward a Philosophy of the Open Road. Right. So it's kind of a defense of reality against the virtual experience. And so the author is defending what he calls homo moto. Right. This is a human being who moves through the world with purpose rather than being simply carried through it. This is the human who uses a car or a motorcycle as a kind of a prosthetic that amplifies our embodied capacities. The human being who gains freedom, familiarity and mastery by navigating swiftly through a complex landscape. And so... I was a terrible driver when when I was learning. Like everyone else was getting was getting their their driver's license uh, way before me, and I, I was just so out of it, man. It, it was it was embarrassing. Like I had to get get a, a certificate twice from my, my driver's ed teacher. I, I the first time I took driver's ed, like I didn't know how to drive. So all my peers, they were already, I guess, driving in parking lots or in back roads. And I, I was learning to drive and my dad was good. He he would, he, he wouldn't lecture me. He would just kind of sit there as, as I figured it out. I learned on a stick shift. I, I didn't learn on an automatic and there are a lot of hills in, in Auburn where I was learning to drive. So, uh, you know, learning to take off from a stop on, on a fairly steep hill with, with a stick shift was a bit of a challenge. I had some bad judgment. I pulled out in front of a guy on a motorcycle and he kind of skidded to, to a stop and came off his motorcycle at the last minute, like right in front of him. I pulled out in front of him and then I panicked and I stopped like right in, right in his way. And, and he came off his bike. Luckily he wasn't injured, but he was kind of shaken up. And he had all these like girly magazines on the back of his bike. And my dad like took $40 or $60 and put them in his pocket. And, and uh, then my parents insisted that, that I, I drive away. But it was such a big deal that all my friends were getting their driver's license at 16. And I was almost 18, right? It was May 1984 before I finally got my driver's license. And I only became comfortable with driving when I went back to Australia, learning to drive on the other side of the road. And my brother let me you know, drive his car quite a bit. And God, I was awful. I was overtaking. And then suddenly the car's coming at me. You know, I'm going this way. They're coming at me like, like this. And so I go off on the other side of the road to, to avoid a head-on collision. And then... 
I was a little I was a little shaky backing out of my brother's garage and I like scraped his nice nice new car on, on the the brick of the garage but uh learning to become competent with driving was like a huge step for, for me towards adulthood and then I got back to America and I was driving to San Francisco I used to cover the San Francisco 49ers which was like a two and a half hour drive from from Auburn. I'd get to drive back to Pacific Union College. I bought a car. These were huge steps. So if people aren't driving so much anymore, what are going to be the the crossing points into adulthood, right? So this new book argues driving is an important form of organic civic life. It's a realm of interaction that demands the skills of cooperation and improvisation, right? And there doesn't seem to be any evident replacement for driving, right? In, in the self-driving utopia, right? We're just going to be passive receptacles for other people moving us around, right? So the open road is a seedbed for democratic virtues. I love the open road. I love driving, right? You get out there, particularly if you don't have obligations or limited obligations, and you just hit the open road and you turn on the music or, or a good audible book, I love freedom, right? I just, I love the idea of running for daylight. I, I love just going out there on an adventure and, and seeing what, what life will deliver to you. And I love like navigating my way through. I love like noticing what other people are doing, predicting what they're going to do, uh, navigating the law. So let's say the speed limit, frequently the speed limit to Palm Springs is 55 or 60. And I was rarely much below 75. I was keeping up with traffic. So law is not just what's on the books. Law is how it is enforced. And so driving is a way of getting into reality. And if everyone else around you is driving at least 75, you're a jerk if you're driving 55, all right? You are ruining the experience and you're making the roads less safe. On the other hand, if everyone's driving 55 and you're driving 80, then you are the jerk. So homo moto, right? I was talking a little bit earlier about healthy, healthy narcissism. Like what the hell is healthy narcissism? And I'm going to tell you as soon as I find, since I find the video, I thought I had that all lined up, man. So anyway, healthy narcissism means that you have an exaggerated sense of your own abilities. And usually that doesn't serve you, right, to have an exaggerated sense of your own abilities, but sometimes it does serve you. So when does it serve you, such as when you're doing a show like this? Right? What you can get is that there's no such thing. There's actually multiple measures of what's called healthy narcissism. And the idea really goes back to the this really helped narcissism me. itself. The main confusion people have is that even with my writing, they say I confuse self-esteem and self-confidence with narcissism, and that is not the case. First of all, self-esteem and self-confidence. So unfortunately, he's only speaking on one audio channel, so you don't have to adjust your headphones. But this guy's book, Rethinking Narcissism, really helped me. Helped me to recognize that narcissism, it, which I suffer from, is usually a state rather than a condition. Because even when I was suffering from narcissism, I would move in and out of it. So there are some situations that will bring out much more narcissism than than others. But uh, if, if the audio just drives you crazy, I won't play too much of it. But there's, there's definitely healthy narcissism, and it's not self-esteem. 
right? It's self-enhancement. It's having an exaggerated view of your own abilities and your own importance. And if you're healthy, when someone knocks you back and plunges you back into reality and points out how you have an exaggerated sense of your own abilities and your own importance and your own wisdom, you're able to accept that. But we walk around thinking that we're the center of the world, and that's by and large, that's adaptive. Confidence are only moderately to poorly correlated with narcissism because as somebody becomes more narcissistic, their self-esteem often drops or it fluctuates. Likewise, their confidence does the same. And with different forms of narcissism, which you, if you haven't... Right, so the more narcissistic you are, your, your confidence and your self-esteem actually drop. It's not like narcissism, which is... Narcissism means you have an inordinate desire for attention and admiration, right? So I wouldn't be doing this show if I didn't want you to admire me. <laughs> I would be doing other things with my life. And, and the chat was saying, how, how does 40 afford to live in LA? Well, it's the super chats, bro. It's the super chats. They just come raining in. And uh, that's how I get to live in LA seen my videos or read my material on that in my book or elsewhere, I encourage you to go back and look at the different forms of narcissism. Some people who are extremely narcissistic or have some forms of narcissism, like vulnerable or covert, don't necessarily feel self-confident or have high self-esteem at all. The way you want to think about healthy narcissism and the way I bring it in, in rethinking narcissism is that it's part of a spectrum of self-enhancement. Self-enhancement has a long research tradition. I talk about this previously as well. You can all think of it, also think of it as positive illusions really kind of a slightly rose-colored tint on view of self-world. Yeah, so often we benefit from believing things that aren't true. We benefit by believing things that are irrational. We often benefit from having rose-colored glasses. We often benefit from having idealized beliefs about other people, right? What's the, the key thing I, I've read, according to some academic literature, for a marriage? And that's having an overly idealized perspective on your partner. Right, thinking that they're greater than they objectively are. In the future, it's not realistic. And that's why self-confidence and self-esteem and narcissism are not the same at all. Self-enhancement, which can take healthy forms, just and that is the equivalent of, of healthy narcissism, is a slightly overly positive, unrealistic view of self in often world and future. And there are any number of measures for it. There is Paul Wink's autonomous narcissism, which you can think of as sort of warm ambition. There's leadership authority on the narcissistic personality inventory. There's something called admiration on the narcissistic admiration and rivalry questionnaire or NARC. And then there's just healthy narcissism on the narcissism spectrum scale that my colleagues and I put together that has items like I like to dream big, but not at the expense of my relationships. And I persist in the face of failure, items like that. You can hear the, the flavor of it. But again, just to reiterate, self-enhancement or healthy narcissism is really about the slightly, emphasis on slightly, overly positive, unrealistically so view of self, world, and future. It's kind of a slight inflation. And it turns out it's cross-cultural. It takes different forms, say, in China or Japan, where that slightly overly positive view of self might have more to do with being caring or connected to others versus, say, in the Western culture, where it might have to do with more striving for achievement goals. But it is cross-cultural. The reason that is so important is we also know that moderate self-enhancement or healthy narcissism actually helps People who moderately self-enhance persist in the face of failure. They give and receive freely in relationships. And according to some research by the person who really first looked at this, Shelley Taylor, uh, as Positive Illusions, really goes back to a book from 1980 called Positive Illusions, where she brought all this research together, that sometimes what comes out in the research is people who moderately self-enhance may even live longer because of the health benefits of it. So these are some of the positive aspects of what healthy narcissism is. The reason it's also important, as soon as you start... This really helped me as someone who suffers from narcissism, who's 
who's, you know, gone off the rails frequently out of my inordinate desire for attention and admiration, just recognizing now I don't have to just totally extirpate this, this part of me, but recognizing that there are healthy ways to exhibit this and to use this, what's healthy, what's unhealthy, what serves me, what doesn't. This idea of healthy narcissism, other things become clear, and that is that there are helpful or adaptive aspects of even what we view as narcissistic traits, some of which I've already described, uh, and then they're unhealthy and they do not rise and fall in perfect step with one another. So if you look at measures of narcissism and apply them to, say, politicians, particularly people who later on in life might strive to and achieve the status of becoming president of the United States, they all score high enough on many of the narcissism measures matching up with traits to be considered narcissists that is high enough in the trait. The difference is, at its best, they don't have any of those unhealthy traits. In other words, they moderately enhance. What are some features? So the unhealthy traits... The unhealthy expressions of narcissism is when you're exploiting other people, all right? When you're just using other people as fodder to meet your needs to feel special, right? That's when your narcissism leads you off the rails. Okay, uh, really fair article in Nature, Nature Magazine, nature.com, and talking about do COVID vaccine mandates work? What, what does the data say? And uh, it's pretty down the middle. So notice vaccine mandates risk overly politicizing health policy. It's hard to accurately quantify the consequences such as social exclusion, loss of public trust, and inequitable outcomes, right? And then there are all these other factors that come into play, the way a government handles the pandemic overall, wider political campaigns against vaccination or mandates, frustrations with the way a mandate is implemented. So opposition to vaccines and mandates is often just a way of expressing displeasure with other aspects of civil society, such as rule by elites, right? So all of a sudden, everyone who has an issue with the government or has an issue with the elites now has an issue with vaccines. So much of the opposition to vaccines isn't really about vaccines. It's about big government, right? It, it, it comes down to, do you like the government, right? People who like the government Right. By and large, they're at ease with vaccine mandates. If you don't like the government, then no, I don't want vaccine mandates and I'm not going to get vaccinated. So Ken Brown, aka Deep Left Jokal, is not a big fan of democracy or of nationalism. If you think that whether or not power should be given to the people, the people will say that the people deserve all of the power. So what does that say about the statement that all power should be given to the people, popular sovereignty? It says that people are egotistical, self-interested, and arrogant, and that they believe that they deserve to rule themselves, that they have... Okay, so for Ken Brown, it's egotistical that people think they deserve to rule themselves. Well, what are the alternatives, right? To have the anointed rule us, right? Do do, do people, should people believe that only the powerful should rule, that only experts should rule? So Ken Brown despises nationalism and <laughs> democracy. So like, good for him for being an out-of-the-box thinker, for not being cookie-cutter, for not being predictable. Uh, nationalism means that you believe in the the dignity of you know every member of your nation, and uh, he finds this appalling. Have the technical knowledge, which is required to make important decisions. 
as soon as you right right he, he he despises democracy and rule by the people because the people don't have the technical knowledge to make important decisions so he very much wants rule by experts right? rule by aristocrats he doesn't want the people ruling themselves kind of an anti-american anti-democracy perspective you give the why if you just stop there if you say well if you if you run around town and i start interviewing you do you think power should be given to the people do you believe in popular sovereignty do you believe in true democracy where the people truly have the power you know in this kind of rousseauian we're going to serve the general will we're going to serve the common good do you believe in the common good sir when rousseau came up with that concept of the common good he was appealing to people on a romantic level he was appealing to people's emotions he was appealing to people and saying you know what do you want most in the world you want power do you deserve it well let's ignore that question Let's just ride on this assumption. Are you willing to ride with... No, it wasn't a, a primarily a romantic statement. It wasn't primarily a, a moral statement that, that you deserve it. it. It was a statement that, given the alternatives, people ruling themselves is a better way to go. Right? So it's kind of fun watching these Ken Brown videos because it's like watching, it's like watching a child get into a car and try to drive it. And it's like watching a woman parallel try to parallel park. It's like watching a man try to nurse an infant. So Ken Brown comes across very much like a child playing with big man language and big man words. He's he's he, a child throwing out a ton of adult language, but he doesn't seem to have an adult understanding of what he's talking about. So he's got the the vocabulary of an adult and, and it's combined with the thinking of a child with me on this gravy train choo -choo, we're gonna go on the gravy train and all you have to believe is that power belongs to the people popular sovereignty baby and this is the basis for the legitimacy of government but it's a lie it's a mythology it's a religion it's not based on rationality it's a moral okay so it's a lie it's a, it's a religion it's not based on rationality so that what is all right, so is ruled by experts? Is that just the obvious rational truth? But I think I call me naive. I think there are fundamental truths to the conception of, of rule by the people, to rule by democracy. Now, you're never going to have a pure democracy, but it's childlike, right? It's childish to think, oh, because our democracy is not pure democracy, therefore it's, it's crap, it doesn't amount to anything therefore democracy as a concept is totally useless because it's never been tried in its 100 percent pure version right we have a system today that has considerable elements of democracy along with rule by experts right along with the election of an executive who has virtually unlimited power when it comes to foreign policy but just like there's, there's no pure free market, does that mean that there's nothing to be gained from opening up markets, making them more free? Does that mean there's nothing to, to be understood about the benefits of, say, dialing back uh, government regulation or religious regulation? Just because you don't have the pure free market and you don't have pure democracy? Claim it's a prescription, but it's based on a hollow almost, you know, Ragnar, Redbeardism of the masses. Uh, why do we listen to this Brown character? Never heard of him. We listen to him because it's amusing in that you, you get to watch and see someone who's essentially a child in his understanding of the world uh, struggle or not struggle 
the opposite of struggle. He gets to, with great confidence, proclaim on all sorts of things that he doesn't know much about. And you'll, you'll encounter this frequently in, in daily life. People who, who have the rhetoric, who have the vocabulary, right, who have the big words and throw them around without really understanding what they're talking about. Nietzscheanism of the masses, I know that's a... Oh, the Nietzscheanism of the masses. That has absolutely nothing to do with rule by the people. Like, what's the alternative, right? We, we don't have pure rule by the people, but uh, compared to the alternatives in the real world, all right, we have a great deal of rule by the people. And compared to the alternatives, it's a pretty good option. Right. If we if we had more democracy in this country so that people got to vote whether or not abortion was legal, people got to vote, say, on immigration policy. Right. I, I think uh, probably be a good idea. Ironical. Uh, what do they call it? Jumbo shrimp. And it's an oxymoron, Nietzscheanism of the masses. But that's what it is. It's the egoism. It's the masses saying we decide. We decide what is good and bad. We decide what is good and evil. Why is it egoism of the masses? It's just saying that. Uh, it's better for, for for people to rule themselves rather than to be ruled by so-called experts. Right. Let's uh, try Ken Brown again. This is a video saying, I failed socially. I failed socially. What does that mean? Why am I talking about it? Okay, this has the potential to be an interesting video. Right? I failed socially. Like When people confess their failings, it tends to be compelling. Like when people are honest about their failings, like the very molecules in the air seem to change. There's a whole new level of, of interaction. It's a whole you know, new opening to get to know someone. If someone dares to be honest about their failings, it tends to be interesting. But that's not what we get here. Someone asked me, how does one become humble? And I said, you have to fail. There are a lot of people who I encounter who are not humble and they're not humble for a particular reason which is they're overly so there are a lot of misconceptions about humility humility really just means that you accept reality that you live in reality and in particular you have an accurate understanding of your own strengths and weaknesses and where you fall in a particular interaction so there are a lot of interactions i have where i am essentially the slave i i take direction if, if you have a job right? You are a slave 40 hours a week. You have a full-time job. You're essentially a slave 40 hours a week. If you volunteer and there are people above you who tell you what to do, which I have in my case, then I am an instrument of those people who are in power. So I spend much of my week taking direction from other people. And to be humble means to accept direction from others when that's appropriate. Now, I get to then run my own show where I direct things. So for 10 hours a week, you know, I direct my own show. And then for another 100 hours a week, I, I direct my decisions. And then I have clients who are essentially the boss. So in certain situations, I take direction. Theoretical and insufficiently practical. And I don't mean that in a superficial sense. I mean it in a very deep sense. I mean it in the sense that you can have theories about how you're going to change the world or how the world should be or what should happen. But if you don't take action, then you are a theoretical person and not a practical person. So this is kind of a, a humble brag where I failed socially really means 
I love theories. I have a lot of theories, and I haven't kicked off these real-world movements. There's a place for theory. There's a reason why people are theoretical. I think people are theoretical as a kind of cargo cult because people look at Marx or they look at academia or they look at Christian theologians and they say, these people have all kinds of theories about the world and they're very powerful and they're very important and they're very influential, so I'm going to develop my own theory. And I have done this. I've personally done this. And therefore, because I have exhibited this behavior and because I fit into this group of people and I exude these qualities of the theoretician, I attract other theoreticians. I do not exude the qualities of the practitioner, the practitioner, the activist, the man of action. I don't exude those qualities, and so I don't attract those people. So nobody expects this lad to start a social movement and, and to change the world with, with his theories, right? And so if this is his definition of failure, it's completely delusional. I mean, he's so out of touch with reality, it makes you question, you know, would you trust this guy with anything important to, to run a store or to, to drive your expensive car? I mean, what counts as failure, right? This video is a failure if I don't enjoy making it, if I don't enjoy the challenge, if I don't enjoy the interaction. This video is a failure if it has a negative effect more than a positive effect on people who watch it. And so Ken and I, we just make a lot of theoretical videos. We just share our theories. And so what counts as success? What counts as failure? If you enjoy doing it and you feel good about what you've made, right, and it has a neutral to positive effect on the people who view it, then it's a success unless you could have spent that time much more productively. So if you're not making videos, what would you do? So I'm tired. I would not be spending my time productively right now. I am all out of love. I'm all out of self-discipline. I'm all out of willpower. I'm just kind of run down. So if I'm not making a video right now, I'm not going to be doing anything productive. So this video is not, it's not costing me the opportunity to cure cancer. So... If uh, Ken enjoys making the videos as he seems to, right, and if it's not taking his time away from more valuable pursuits, then his videos are harmless. They're a success. People like attracts like. If my YouTube channel <laughs> was all about me doing very superficial things, I would attract a lot of superficial people. I don't. If my channel was all about, um, you know, chasing women, I'd attract a bunch of people who that's their... Uh, what happened in 2019 with Luke and Ken? I've never had any interaction with, with Ken Brown. I mean, he's criticized me. I've, I've criticized him, but I've had no direct interaction with Ken Brown. Their pastime and their focus. If I had a channel that was about, you know, bodybuilding, I'd attract a lot of people who are interested and concerned with that. But the common denominator between myself and my audience is, you know, people are attracted to the theories that I put out there. My videos are not a diary of all the actions that I'm taking. You know, every day, oh, I'm, I'm doing this and I'm accomplishing that and I'm experiencing this. No, it's just a bunch of theories. And so as a result, I attract around myself theoreticians. So a theory about theories is that people who are theoretical, their weakness is not in their native land. Their, their weakness is in the realm of action. And I say I've socially failed because over my travels, I've created this YouTube channel, and if I had a YouTube channel about cats or a meme channel or a prank channel or something, and I put out a call and I said, hey, I want people to video chat with me, I think I'd get a very small response. 
but because of the way that I've presented myself, I think I've had a fairly large percentage of my audience reach out. I think I've had, you know, somewhere between, you know, 10 to 20% of people actually make a concerted effort or even consider reaching out. And that sort of thing is evolutionary in the sense that it builds upon itself. You know, you don't have, you don't have a, uh, a winged dinosaur, you don't have a, um, or even a winged insect, you don't have flight as a evolutionary adaptation take place without the precursors of, you know, land-based life forms. Animals, insects that walk on land with legs and that are capable of jumping and that, you know, over time this jumping gives way to gliding and this gliding gives way to flying. So in the same way, in terms of social organization, when I have an opportunity to talk with somebody I've never spoken to before, in that five-minute conversation, I'm going to make a first impression. Okay, so uh, not not neurotypical, but uh, pretty harmless and uh, sometimes interesting, sometimes uh, thought-provoking uh, Ken Brown. So I've been reading this book, Conservative Claims of Cultural Oppression, The, the Nature and Origins of Conservophobia, and... There's a section here that is inspired by something I read when I was about 21 in Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, that there are all sorts of vices that people of the upper classes can indulge in without ill effect, whereas if someone of a lower class indulged in this vice, it would absolutely destroy them. And I think that's just a profound point. It shook me up when I read that in 1988, and it's wisdom that sticks with me. And... So people of fashion, all right, the, the ruling liberal left intelligentsia, our, our ruling elites, they, they have all these vices, vices of luxury and uh, disorder and uh, pursuit of pleasure, lack of temperance, uh, breach of chastity, and they're able to indulge in these vices without much harm, all right? If you're a smart person, and relatively disciplined person, you can probably be sexually promiscuous without destroying your life. But if you are less smart and less disciplined and have a lower social and economic status, you're much more likely to destroy your life. So the middle classes and the working classes, by and large, feel like we need to commit to a strict moral system, to an austere moral system. And the middle class tends to regard the upper class vices with absolute abhorrence and loathing. They recognize that these vices, if they engaged in them, would be absolutely ruinous, even if they can be indulged in with impunity by people from the upper classes that, who have, have a privilege that shields them from the consequences of these vices. So Europeans frequently regard Americans as moralistic. Right, because Europeans still have lingering traces of their monarchic and aristocratic heritage, right, to to a, a social standing that's congenial to a loose system of morality. But Americans don't have a monarchy and they don't have a landed aristocracy like the Europeans. And so from the very beginning, Americans have relied upon moral character as a test of merit, self-discipline as the basis of self-government. And so Americans still pay homage to moral character, to Republican virtue. So Robert Bork, who was 
nominated for the U.S. Supreme Court and didn't make it under Ronald Reagan, he noted that people capable of high achievement in one field or another may find their meaning in work, and they may find a community among colleagues, and they may not particularly need social and moral separation, right? So people who get their meaning from being doctors, lawyers, professionals, they're not likely to need the more sordid destructions that popular culture offers. But large segments of the population don't fall into this category. For them, the drives of liberalism are absolutely catastrophic. Right? So if you're a doctor, lawyer, dentist, uh, multimillionaire, venture capitalist, right, you can engage in all sorts of vices that people in the lower middle class and working class, if they started engaging in, would completely destroy them, right? So sexual promiscuity, right? People in the upper classes can often engage in this, but someone in the working class, it could just destroy their life. So the, the liberal libertine vision is generally advanced by those who have significant professional stature, and their profession will usually provide their lives with meaning and coherence. And so the erosion of traditional religion and traditional morality is not nearly as much a threat to them as it is to the silent majority, right? If, if your life is not wrapped up in your profession, right, you will have a much greater need for traditional religion and morality. And so the type of vices that uh, successful people in Hollywood can engage in, right, will absolutely destroy ordinary people. So the high IQ tenured radical, you know, who rails against the bourgeois norms from within the ivory tower, he's probably going to be okay. He's high IQ, which probably brings with it uh, more insight, better ability to, to read the future. He's going to be able to na navigate reality fairly well. But the less privileged, the underclass, the, the lower middle class, Right? They take on these adversarial attitudes towards traditional morality. Right, They are rejecting the only values that can save them and members of their class from crime, drug addiction, illegitimacy, and other perils. So conservatives tend to be much more critical of underclass habits and much more concerned about public morality because they see that liberalism and libertinism inflicts the greatest damage on the most vulnerable, right? So the level of delinquency that a white suburban teenager can indulge in with relatively, relative impunity could literally be fatal to a black inner-city teenager who doesn't have as many resources. And so many upper-class people and people in Hollywood can indulge in great Dionysian excess, right? The secular royalty of Hollywood lead libertine lives and also feel compelled to export their values that really only the rich and the privileged can afford. So Madonna can urge her followers to cast off their bourgeois sexual hang-ups and then after she tires of that game, she can settle down with her husband and kids while the lower middle-class girls from Jersey City who take her advice, they're probably not going to be as lucky. So Bill O'Reilly used to lament the secular progressive crowd and the mainstream media glorifying the gangster world and making money from it. So you have all these white middle-aged ponytail music executives who are no better than crack dealers, right? They know their product dehumanizes people, that it encourages awful behavior. They make money from it. It doesn't ruin their lives, but it is a factor ruining the lives of ordinary people. 
who don't have the resources that the the rich music executive does. So from a conservative perspective, the, the callousness of today's liberal elites towards regular people is very similar to the callousness of 19th century capitalists towards the suffering of the workers, right? It's, it's brought about by a commitment to inhumanly abstract conceptions of freedom, a, a simple, you know, my liberty ends at your nose ethic that doesn't recognize the chains of social interconnectedness, which gives democratic majorities a legitimate interest in regulating moral environment, right? Most people need public moral regulation. So liberals believe that state regulation is needed to redress gross inequalities of economic power. Conservatives insist that many forms of moral legislation are required to protect those whose cultural influence is being unjustly marginalized by the media and Hollywood. So the left is unfailingly diligent in exposing business for polluting the natural environment. But when is the last time someone on the left denounced Hollywood or the music industry for polluting the moral environment? So it's not the conservatives, these meddlesome moralists trying to foist their personal preferences on unwilling others, but really they're socially minded egalitarians who hold liberals accountable for the externalities, for the, for the repercussions of their libertine ways and libertine ideals that... Uh, these externalities that liberalism inflicts on non-liberals, like the forgotten lower middle-class girls of Jersey City. So very thoughtful analysis from Ronnie Goodman in this excellent book on conservative claims of cultural oppression, the nature and the origins of conservophobia. So here's a little bit more on P Peter McCullough. Really done studies, randomized controlled trials. The answer is very consistent. Ivermectin doesn't help. Researchers have tried giving Ivermectin to patients before they go to the hospital, while they're in the hospital, if they're mild, if they're really sick. In any case, it just doesn't seem to help. You can talk about Peter McCullough's credentials and his publication record all you want. The fact of the matter is that what he's saying right now is demonstrably false, but he seems to care more about self-interest than he does about what is true. If you want to see more debunking of Peter McCullough and other COVID-19 misinformation, check out Dr. Allison Campbell's blog that I've linked in the description below. Okay, healthy narcissism. Features of healthy narcissism, and as opposed to, say, unhealthy or pathological narcissism, people who score high on these measures may, in fact, exaggerate uh, and overestimate their intelligence, their attractiveness, or their ability on a task. But when judges bring that information to them, objective judges, say, rating their work and point out, well, actually, you know, you're okay at this, you're average, they adjust their view down. They adjust it to be more realistic. In other words, they start out kind of inflated and then they get that information and they, and they adjust it down to a more realistic view. Whereas people who are extremely narcissistic, they cling to that self-enhancement. This is why I view and talk about narcissism as an addictive drive to feel special. That is uh, having to self-enhance no matter what the cost to others. If you give somebody who's extremely narcissistic feedback that they really aren't as wonderful at something or wonderful in certain traits as they thought they were, they will attack. They will get angry. And this is one of the hallmarks of when that kind of self-enhancement turns negative or turns, uh, turns unhealthy. So uh, why is this important too as well in terms of a lack of self-enhancement? Well, it turns out there's plenty of research on that as well in empirical research and just how people have understood the concept for the longest time. And that is lack of self-enhancement is a problem. In rethinking narcissism, this is why I arrange things from lack of self-enhancement to moderate self-enhancement to extreme self-enhancement as we're thinking about a scale or a spectrum of narcissism. People who never self-enhance at all are anxious often. They're often depressed. They might be empathic, they might be warm, but they struggle to hold on to a sense of their own self. 
This is where confidence might drop with a lack of self-enhancement, just as it can with extreme self-enhancement. So looking at the mainstream media this afternoon, just before the show, I was struck by all this talk about democracy under attack. And uh, it just seems such a, a dramatic exaggeration of the problems brought about by Donald Trump, in particular the January 6th riot. Damn, I have to keep adjusting my, my sound levels, otherwise they, they drop or they rise. But uh, here we are. So democracy under attack, but it's the same crowd who wants rule by experts with regard to COVID and all sorts of other things and doesn't want people to have the ability to vote on uh, whether or not abortion is legal. And so the January 6th committee is wrapping up and they've got a primetime hearing right now to focus on Trump's inaction during the riot. And so if this is the culmination of the committee's work, that uh, Trump didn't respond sufficiently to the January 6th riot, then they're in trouble, right? If their whole emphasis tonight is Trump didn't do enough to squelch the riot, I don't think that's going to move move the needle, right? So the position of the observer is a key part of the data sometimes. And so people on the right, it looks like they're going to be completely unmoved by these January 6 hearings. People on the left, right, they're going to find their point of view that Donald Trump is a grave threat to democracy. They're going to be solidified in that point of view. And I notice for most pundits, for most analysts in the news media, the hearings have exceeded their expectations, but the hearings have underwhelmed me. I thought they would be more damaging, and I'm open to very damaging allegations against Donald Trump. I think that it was irresponsible of Trump to claim that the 2020 elections were rigged. I don't think there's any strong evidence for significant amounts of voter fraud in the 2020 election. But I don't think the January 6 riots were the result of some great vast conspiracy. They were obviously the, the spontaneous reactions of people that Donald Trump had riled up and these people went out and behaved badly. The January 6 riots tarnished Trump's reputation. They tarnished his standing. But the January 6 committee seems to me as utterly failed to demonstrate a conspiracy. I don't see how they're going to be able to make a case that uh, Donald Trump fomented insurrection. The January 6 riots did not strike me as insurrection. They weren't organized enough to do that. They, they were a riot. And so from where I stand right now, July 21, 2022, the January 6 hearings have not succeeded. They, they have not provided a firm foundation for getting rid of Donald Trump from future public life in America. They're not going to be able to stop him running for, for president if this is all the evidence they have. Now, I was looking at some pundits complaining that Joe Biden's got really low approval ratings and it's unfair and it's because of all the negative media attention. And I was reading pundit after pundit this afternoon saying that uh, Joe Biden is obviously a better president than Donald Trump. And I, I can understand that perspective. I don't share it. I mean, number one, Biden is blundering into World War III with Russia over Ukraine. Right? This could be an absolute disaster. It could lead to nuclear exchange. We don't have vital national security interests in Ukraine. So why are we spending tens of billions of dollars to prop up Ukraine? If we hadn't done that, Russia would have just taken Ukraine in, in a few days and uh, Ukraine would have a future. 
but now Ukraine has no future because we're effectively fighting to the last dead Ukrainian. Either Ukrainians are going to die or they're going to flee their country. I mean, Ukraine has no path forward because we have encouraged them to believe that they can win. So that was the top New York Times article today about how Ukraine is increasingly convinced that they can win the war against Russia. But to the extent that they're winning the war against Russia, it's because NATO and the United States has subsidized them and provided them with weapons. So it's really not so much Russia versus Ukraine, it's Russia versus NATO and, and the United States. That's why Ukraine has done so well. So if we blunder into World War Three here, right, obviously Joe Biden would be a far inferior choice to, to Donald Trump. Also, Trump has done much better with immigration. So by the final year of Donald Trump's reign, he crushed immigration, crushed illegal and legal immigration into the country. And Donald Trump's also on, on the right side of the issues that I care about most, such as, generally speaking, being, being appalled at all the anti-police uh, rhetoric and uh, campaigning and defunding of police. Uh, Donald Trump's also on the right side of being skeptical of affirmative action, being skeptical of Black Lives Matter, being skeptical of Antifa. And Donald Trump is much more reluctant to blunder into armed overseas interventions, such as what we're engaged in right now. So I think Trump was doing a better job than Joe Biden is currently doing. Now, one thing that I noticed listening to Robert Wright uh, podcast with Ross Douthat the other day, I'm noticing compared to 15, 20 years ago, political enmity right now is much more based on identity rather than on policy. So we're not primarily arguing about policy anymore. Uh, Joe Biden, by and large, is still carrying on many of Donald Trump's policies, particularly with regard to being a nationalist and being protectionist on trade. All right. Uh, Biden is carrying on much of Trump's populist agenda, but we're not primarily arguing about policy anymore. We're not primarily arguing about legislation. It seems like most of the anger right now is primarily based on identity. It's not based on any particular form of legislation. low narcissism versus high narcissism. And these are people who lack self-enhancement at all are the people that I refer to as echoists in my research and in my writing. The problem is that if you struggle to self-enhance at all, that, that you don't have some of those protective mechanisms that will actually help with realistic self-confidence and self-esteem as well, but they also come with this kind of inflation. Where does it come from? Interestingly, what we know from the research is that people who are able to turn to others when they're sad, scared, lonely, blue, you've heard me talk about this before. In other words, people who are securely attached who feel comfortable depending on others with a range of emotions and turning to them in mutually caring and connected ways. People who can do that also tend to moderately self-enhance. They're correlated. So to the extent that we're able to connect in these healthy ways and learn to... Right. When you have an accurate understanding of the situational nature of reality, you're going to operate much more effectively, efficiently, and, and happily. So for one thing, put people in their proper genre. Like understand Richard Spencer is a contrarian shock jock. When you understand Richard Spencer, contrarian shock jock, then you're not going to be damaged by him, right? You're not going to be disappointed by him. Uh, ben Shapiro, uh, another, he's a the most conservative shock jock that you, you can be in the 
modern American political system. Therefore, if you understand that Ben Shapiro is a conservative shock jock, you won't expect original analysis from him. You, you won't expect, you know, thoughtful analysis from, from Ben Shapiro. He's just a, a conservative shock jock, right? When you put people in their correct genre, so you recognize someone's a politician, and then you, you recognize that they're going to be constantly bending with whatever is popular and what will get them donations and will get them power, right? Then you're not going to be disappointed that, uh, for example, that they're cowardly. So <clears throat> recognize that uh, the human tendency when you think something is good is to overstate the case. So I think uh, COVID vaccines are excellent, but the people who are promoting COVID vaccines overwhelmingly oversold their case by, by saying, oh, you're not going to get infected if you take COVID vaccines. That, that's now proven to be uh, false. So recognizing the power of situation, right? Recognizing when it's appropriate for one to lead and when it's appropriate for one to follow, there's a time to be funny and there's a time to be serious. There's a time to be a servant and uh, there's a time to take charge, right? So I'm not the boss. You're not the boss. Joe Biden's not the boss. The situation is the boss. So this situation, I get to say anything I want, right? This situation is time that I am the boss, but I may shut this down and I may get a phone call and the situation is I am now the servant, right? It is now time for me to do what the person on the other end of the phone wants me to do. And then I may go do a volunteer gig this evening. And again, I will be the servant, right? I won't be the boss. Situation is the boss. And the situation is I'm taking direction. I'm just here to help out with a group that I care about, help out people that I care about. And so I'm going to take orders. And then when I finish that volunteer gig, then I'm back in control, right? Now I choose how I want to spend my time. So I have about 10 to 15 hours a week where I give to other people, where I volunteer. And then it's uh, 40 time where I do what I want. Okay, that's it. Bye-bye. Take care.